Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's June 29th, and I'm your host, Christine Hargis. Healthcare contributor Todd Campbell is calling into Full HQ in Alexandria, Virginia via Skype. Welcome to the show, Todd. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Christine. So today we are talking about Brexit, specifically as it relates to healthcare. We're going to do a quick recap of what's gone down in the markets the past few week, the past week or so, and talk about uh, how to think about these currency fluctuations and how the EU may have to completely rethink its drug approval process, as well as what all this means for healthcare companies and investors. As some examples, we'll touch on a couple of major UK-based companies, and we'll give an example of a US-based company that does a lot of business in Europe because it's all connected. Sounds like we've got a lot to cover, Todd. Absolutely. Wait a minute. Is there some news going on globally that maybe our listeners would be interested in? In case you missed it, there's kind of something going on here. Yeah. I mean, and I think it really took a lot of people by surprise. I mean, you've got Britain deciding that they want to leave um, the European Union. And while a lot of people that, you know, they discussed the pros and cons leading up to this referendum vote last week, it was widely thought or expected by most industry participants that. Britain would come down on the side of remaining in the EU, not exiting. And yeah, you know, know as it. investors have seen, when things tend to surprise um, industry participants, um, markets tend to shudder a little bit. Yeah, it absolutely took us by surprise here in HQ. The editorial department did a little survey to see who could get the closest to the specific number, percentage-wise, of people that would vote to remain. And the only people that had it correctly predicted that they would vote to leave were the people that misunderstood the question and thought it was being asked in reverse. Like, oh, that is crazy. Absolutely nobody. And this is a team of 12, 13 people. None of us saw this coming. I know you were all glued to, to the monitors uh, paying attention to the vote. It's a very intriguing and interesting thing that's going on globally. Um, and it has broad spread, widespread um, implications for global trade. You know, we've spent the last seven or eight decades you know, advocating for free markets to boost uh, economic activity. And now we've got a situation where, you know, people are saying, maybe that's not the best plan. Yeah, the common opinion among economists was that this would be bad for the economy at large. But the question that I want to dig into is, why does this impact the stock market and economics at all? Well, the main reason that you're seeing stock markets globally react to this is because of the worry of contagion effect, which is that, okay, you've got Britain, which is a big part of the EU separating. What happens now as far as Britain's GDP? You know, will it go up or will it go down? And generally speaking, most independent uh, economists, the International Monetary Fund, these people uh, that have crunched the numbers believe that you'll see uh, a decline in wages, uh, a decline in production as a result. You could see uh, tariffs and trade wars, depending on how they negotiate and exit. Uh, things that would be you know, a detriment to economic growth within that country. And because it's such a big part of the uh, EU econ uh, European economy, therefore you know, could cause a recession in Europe. And since the US uh, trades a lot with uh, Europe, um, that could have a negative impact on multinationals that do business overseas. And you could see, looking across the broader market, that all of the major indices were down on this news. How specifically did healthcare fare? What's interesting to me is, is and I think that 
you know, investors need to remember that typically in times of trouble, uh, investors seek out defensive areas of the market. One of the most defensive areas of the market is healthcare, right? Because if you need healthcare, you're probably not going to focus too, too much about how much money is in your wallet. You're still going to get that. So there's an inelastic relationship toward, uh, to the economy that provides a little bit of insulation to healthcare stocks. And that's especially true uh, in European markets where you have a single payer system. So theoretically, um, the impact on each individual patient's wallet is even smaller. Um, healthcare stocks, however, didn't climb uh, in the wake of Brexit. They declined. And there are a number of different reasons for that. Um, if you look at companies specifically, you had GlaxoSmithKline trade down about 2.9% since the vote. Yeah, AstraZeneca down a percent. Um, but you've got you know biotech stocks overall down much more than that, down 4%. And you've got pharmaceutical companies uh, down much more than that, down 2.9%. So yeah, healthcare stocks, which are typically viewed as defensive, they still fell. So you mentioned GlaxoSmithKline and AstraZeneca. These are UK-based companies, and both of their leaders had come out previously saying that they don't think that this is a good idea for Britain to leave. Uh, Glaxo's CEO, Sir Andrew Witte, said earlier this year that and this is a quote, uh, Europe has gone from 27 fragmented, independent, not talking to each other, regulatory authorities in the healthcare space to one. That's a big deal. AstraZeneca, meanwhile, their CEO said, and another quote, Britain would be better off staying within the EU than outside of it. So these guys make their points pretty clear, and they're not going to be happy now. Right. And as CEOs of publicly traded companies, what they're really saying is when they say that Britain would be better off, they're saying our company would be better off too, right? So I think that broadly speaking, if you look at the people who wanted to remain in the EU, the scientific community, including people who are involved in healthcare research and development, overwhelmingly wanted to remain in the EU, both for the advantages and some free trade, but also because there's been a big push over the last decade to turn London into a healthcare uh, powerhouse of innovation on par with, say, Boston and in the United States. Yeah, London has absolutely been a hub for a couple of reasons. So there's enormous research presence there, and that's something that we'll talk about a little bit later in the episode. But another really interesting part of this story is that the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, is based in London. Right. So, you know, to talk a little bit about this, because there are some implications of the Brexit that are going to impact patient care or potentially could impact patient care. One of them is the fact that the United Kingdom relies upon the EMA to vet the vet drugs that could be used in UK patients. Okay, so the EMA is charged with either approving or rejecting drug approvals. That's one of the reasons GlaxoSmithKline and AstraZeneca want to remain because it's one single regulatory body. They don't the want to have to go ahead and pitch this to three different bodies. Right, they cover the entire EU in one single marketing authorization application. But now they're going to have to leave. They can't continue to be based in London if they're not part of the, the EU anymore. Right. The EMA is probably going to end up somewhere in France or in Germany. Sweden would like to have it. You know, everybody is trying to figure out how they can have it. You know, there's a, a big 
infrastructure in London, in science, in in, regula- in healthcare regula- you know, regulation, hundreds of scientists uh, from all around Europe, including you know areas that could theoretically uh, it could be harder for them to travel to and from. I mean, there's all sorts of implications um, that that could come uh, come because of this. Uh, you know, obviously the UK could. You know, it has some infrastructure on its own. It's got the, the uh, a body that negotiates prices directly with drug makers. It's got another body that's responsible for making sure that manufacturing that occurs in their country uh, is done appropriately. Um, you know, theoretically, they could choose to um, set up a system similar to the FDA here in the United States. Or they could just do what Norway does and say, okay, well, we're not in, we're independent, we're not in the EU. But we're still going to cut a deal with you to be able to rely on the EMA to to vet the stock, vet the drugs. Yeah, those are the two options that they're faced with now. I mean, they could go the Norway route, and that would be kind of letting it stay largely the way it is now. But the other option here that you mentioned is if you had an agency like the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency take over that would probably make drug approval a heck of a lot more costly and time-consuming. And of course, this regulatory body also does a lot of work underlying many of the EMA reviews, particularly when it comes to patient safety. So if you look at it from the perspective of the EMA, they probably don't want to lose the the work that the, that the UK does either. It's going to be very interesting to see how the negotiations play out on this. You know, one of the key tenets of the European Union is the freedom of movement of both goods and people. And Brexit was about the restriction of the movement of goods and people. So it'll be very curious. I'm very curious to see how this shakes out. We don't know. You hinted, or you said actually, that you know one of the concerns that you know CEO Witty and 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 these other companies have is that okay, if I have to go out now and I have to you know apply uh, for approval in multiple. Um, uh, countries, independent, no longer using the EMA, that's going to increase my costs, make my drugs less profitable. I also now have to consider, okay, if I'm manufacturing drugs in the UK and I want to distribute them throughout the EU, what things change now uh, in regard to that? Am I going to have delays in getting product from, say, the UK to Germany? Am I going to have to worry about um, additional border uh, regulatory restrictions on the movement of goods that could also impede my profitability. And of course, then you know there's a currency uh, component to this. You know, if the currency in the UK or the euro falls versus other areas of the world, then that could take a short-term uh, toll on revenue and profitability as well. Let's take another look at currency. I know that the financials crew covered it on Monday's episode of Industry Focus, but it's worth reiterating some points that relate specifically to healthcare. And something that I want to emphasize is that currency is a consideration that is really largely focused on the short term. I mean, look at, for example, Johnson Johnson and their struggles all last year fighting currency headwinds. And Every single time you hear The Motley Fool and anybody with a long-term perspective cover this company, it's like, guys, you can't look at this at face value. You have to strip away the effects of the currency because these things go up and they go down, and it doesn't really impact the underlying business. But that being said, it could be a pretty strong tailwind for these UK companies in the short term, at least. 
It depends a lot on how they report their currencies. You know, a company like GlaxoSmithKline, which reports in pounds, could see a big benefit. You know, it produces a lot more product in the UK than it generates in revenue in the UK. And as a result, you know, if you look at their Q1 results, uh, both on the top and bottom line, I think the top line had a, uh, a 3% uh, tailwind because of exchange rates, and the bottom one had a 6% tailwind because of exchange rates. So that was because you know of converting the the weak pound to a strong dollar, and since the pound has weakened even more since then, um, I think investors could probably say, okay, well the tailwind in currency is probably going to continue for them. On the other side, however, you've got AstraZeneca, and they reported uh, back at the end of the Q Q1 that they were going to face a two percent headwind because of currency exchange. So you have to look at each individual company independently when you're considering the currency exchange impact. You and I have talked about this a lot on the show previously. The things you want to consider in evaluating biopharma stocks is product, pipeline, and profitability. You'll notice currency is not one of those three. So yes, you do not want to use currency as the, uh, I guess the dominant reason for buying or selling a stock. However, it can be helpful to know because you can guarantee, or at least I would bet, that during these upcoming uh, conference calls, uh, management of these biopharma companies are going to be talking a lot more of the potential headwinds or tailwinds because of this currency conversion issue. And this is not something that's limited to just companies that are based in the UK. Almost every single US-based company has some business in the EU. One example of a company that has a lot of European revenue coming in would be Celgene. And this is the company that has a ton of currency hedges in place. They're using options to try to minimize their risk. And it's going to be a really important part of their business, which, by the way, um, I mentioned options. And it got me thinking in the back of my head about how this is kind of a complex topic that has a lot of misunderstandings around it. And I just want to throw it out there that The Motley Fool actually has a free options university course. So feel free to reach out to us via email, Twitter, um, industryfocus at fool.com is the email address to get the link. You'll have to enter an email address when you get it, as it is an emailed series. But it's a really fantastic way to learn from the pros in a very accessible way how to use options from an individual investor standpoint, which might be a little bit different than the way Celgene does it, but hey, it could help you understand Celgene's use too. Right. All of these companies, it's important to know that all of these companies, if they're doing business globally, they're hedging some of that exposure. However, because no one has a crystal ball, uh, oftentimes trying to hedge it, you can't hedge it perfectly, right? So that's how you end up with companies reporting both currency adjusted and operational results in their quarterly numbers. Companies like Celgene do get a lot of business from Europe. Um, think about this for a second, right? The United States spends the most on uh, medicines. So that's typically where companies like Celgene focus initially. Let's get approval by the FDA so we can launch our drugs here in the United States. However, Japan and Europe are also major consumers uh, of drugs, and those are significant markets for Celgene. It gets about 37% of the revenue uh, for its top selling drug, Revlimid, from markets outside of the US. And as a result, it does face some currency uh, headwinds when it converts those dollars, uh, that other money back into dollars. Last quarter, uh, or I should say last year, it was about a 2% drag uh, that they had to deal with because of the strong dollar. Who knows what it'll be now? You'll want to watch 
for their their conference call and listen to management and figure out what they think that might mean for guidance for the rest of the year. And this is fortunately something that companies are very transparent about. It's not terribly difficult to try to figure out the underlying business movements, whether they're going up or down, without the effects of currency involved. And it's certainly something that, going forward, we're going to hear about in these earnings calls. So, Todd, we talked about the drug makers, and we talked about the approval process. Let's take it and rewind a little bit and go back to research, because this is the last element of the story that I want to touch on, and I think it's actually the most interesting. So, the UK is a research hub. They, they receive a ton of funding from larger EU research projects, and they actually receive more research money than they give to these funds. About 16% of the four billion UK life sciences money that they spend on research annually comes from these EU grants. So there's this huge question and concern now within the research industry. What's going to happen to that money? EU uh, member countries can participate in something called Horizon 2020. And Horizon 2020 is a major research initiative uh, worth 80 billion uh, uh, euros uh, from over the over the a 10-year period, I think, that runs through 2020. Okay. In the last fall alone, uh, they came out and said that we're gonna spend or, or invest 16 uh, billion euros in research throughout the EU. That's a ton of money that is now put in jeopardy by the decision to Brexit. And it's going to be very interesting for um, Glaxo and AstraZeneca and companies that are located over in the UK that obviously have very deep ties to the universities doing research there to see what happens to those plans to, you know, turn again London into this big innovation hub for medicine. I saw a couple of really interesting quotes from some leaders of the industry, particularly on the research side and the science side. Stephen Hawking said that Brexit would be a disaster for UK science. That is not a good sign right there. However, I will also read one more quote. Um, This is from Steve Bates. He's the CEO of the Bioindustry Association, which is a British life sciences trade organization. He says, At first, he goes, the future structure of medicine regulation in Europe is now thrown into question. Then he goes on, and this is a really foolish point of view right here, but he just says, we've just got to keep on and carry on (laughs) bioteching, which is just such a lovely British way of putting that. But he's right. I mean, this will all be a gradual shift over the next two plus years. There's really no set date that the British government is going to invoke this Article 50, which would trigger the entire process of negotiation. But it is something that, as always, we want to have a long-term mindset about. So, Todd, thank you so much for helping me tell this story and dig a little bit deeper into Brexit and particularly the healthcare side of it today. We are almost out of time, but before we go, I would like to remind everyone that you can find past episodes of Industry Focus and all of the Motley Fool's podcasts online at podcast.fool.com. We've also got a listener survey that we would really love your help with. It will only take a minute, you can do it anonymously, and it will help us serve you better. So if you could please help us out, we would really appreciate it. Again, the survey is online at podcast.fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!